You'll remember back in 1535, the city of Geneva uh, cast off the spiritual shackles of the Roman Catholic Church. They were stuck in a, in a you know, essentially a, a dark, you know, spiritual condition where there was no preaching of the word, there was no presentation of the gospel. It was a corrupt system. And uh, in 1535, they followed a couple other of the city-states there in Switzerland, and the city of Geneva said, okay, we're done with that. And so they said, we're done with Roman Catholicism. They pushed him out of the city. Uh, when they did that, it was a bold statement of spiritual and practical independence. In fact, they were so uh, excited about this new phase of independence that uh, they opened their own mint, their own mint. They were going to mint their own coins, but they needed a motto to put on the coins. And so they adopted a new city motto in Geneva, 1535. That motto was Post Tenebras Lux. And I can show you, I think I have one of those coins. Uh, oh, it's a little, little fuzzy, okay, but that's about what it looked like. But Post Tenebras Lux, which as you all know is Latin for after darkness light. After darkness light. The city council met and they said, you know what, we need a motto for the city that summarizes where we are, where we want to go. And in their mind, they, they, uh, they associated darkness with that uh, shade, um, veiling or uh, shading of the gospel that was in the Roman Catholic system, where it was not clearly presented, it was not taught. And they associated light with the recovery of the scriptures and the proclamation of the truth of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel that you could be forgiven of your sins, not by doing a bunch of good works and going through a priest, but rather by simply confessing them to God directly and putting your faith in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And they said, that is light. So they said, this is our motto, post tenebras lukes. Gotta love it. It's a fitting motto for Geneva, but it's also a fitting motto for every Christian. Because before you come to faith in Christ, right, we lived in darkness. We read already from Colossians that we, were, we have been rescued and transferred out of the domain of darkness and into Jesus' kingdom. And when we lived in darkness, what does that mean? Well, that means we made sinful choices. We, we experienced the consequences of those choices, right? We lived in the shame and guilt that's associated with those sinful choices. We had no hope of sure forgiveness, Maybe we were stuck in a works orientation. Maybe we were stuck in despair and hurt. And maybe we were arrogant and self-righteous and thought, you know, we could do it ourselves or we didn't even need forgiveness. But whatever it is, that world, that world is darkness. And we've been rescued out of it by, by the, the light of the gospel. Post tenebras lux is a good motto. You see, in 1 John, the Apostle John is writing to the church because there's a segment of false teaching that had arisen at the time that attacked this general truth, that we've been rescued out of darkness and into light. The, the teaching was, it all surrounded this idea that, you know what? There are certain people, a select, a very select few, who were not in need of forgiveness of sins. And they were the chosen ones. And because they were chosen, it didn't matter how they lived. So they could kind of live however they wanted, but because they were in the club, they were in the club. And all this teaching, it, didn't, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't gospel. It wasn't consistent with the message of Jesus and the apostles. And so John needs to correct and instruct them and say, listen, here's the deal. This is what we saw and heard. This is what we experienced with Jesus. And that truth, that doctrine actually matters. We talked about that, talked about that last week. It changes our lives. We pick it up this morning in verse 5 of chapter 1. And in this part, 
the Apostle John starts to talk about, okay, this is the actual you know, content of teaching that we need to know that is true to correct or to refute the false teaching. And it starts with this glorious observation in, in verse 5. If you look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. He's talked in the first four verses about the message. Okay, here it is. This is the message. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Before we move on, we just need to camp there for a moment and consider what does it mean for us to say that God is light? What John is saying is this. God is the source of life and provision. He is saying that that God is infinitely beautiful, and importantly, God is infinitely pure and holy. Everything about God is good. And we get kind of the the other side of it when he adds in verse 5. He says, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So there is no failure in God. There is no deficiency in God. There is no sin or evil or wickedness in God. And to ever doubt God in that way or to accuse him of that would be flat out wrong. That God does not fail. There is no darkness in him. That's, a, that's the important baseline for John as he just establishes this truth. He says, we got to talk about this. And we got to know before we get to the details, we got to know this, that God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him at all. Okay, that's the foundational starting point. He is the source of life, purity, goodness, beauty. There is no impurity in him. And while that might seem obvious on the one hand, on the other hand, sometimes practically it's difficult to remember. Paul, uh, John makes this uh, observation and ex- explains this truth to lead into verse 6. Watch verse 6. He says, If we say, okay, in light of this truth that God is light, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. The first aspect of this heresy that had uh, potentially infected the church during John's day, and certainly it's still around today, is the heresy of hypocrisy, where someone would go around saying, we have fellowship with God. We, uh, today's language, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus, right? I- I'm-, I'm a good person in that sense, right? I have fellowship with God. He says, listen, if we say that, if we say we have fellowship with God and God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him, and yet we walk in darkness, what? We are lying and not practicing the truth. He says, here's the circumstance. Somebody claims this, and yet at the same time as saying I have fellowship with God, they are walking in darkness. That means living in darkness, making uh, sinful choices, living in sin without thinking it's a problem. They're just living in darkness, you know, like that's what they were made to do, right? And it's not a problem for them. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we're living in darkness, that's the evidence, and the verdict is in. The verdict is we would be lying and not practicing the truth. So he comes right at it. Now, again, the teaching in the first century was, it was, okay, um, if you're in the club, it doesn't matter how you live. And John says, that is not Christianity. That is not the message of Jesus. So because God is light, right, we have to recognize that God's children walk in light. And that's where he goes in verse 7. He says, if we walk in the light, live in the light, right, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John says, here's the deal. If you claim to have fellowship with him, and then you walk in darkness, the the, the conclusion is you're lying. Okay, it's not, not legit. You're not practicing the truth. But if you claim, right, if you claim to have fellowship with him and then you actually do walk in the light 
And we'll understand, he, he'll make it very clear, it doesn't mean perfectly, but it does mean in general that you're walking in the light, following Christ in the practical areas of your life, decision-making every day, right? He says, if that's what you're doing, then the verdict there is that we have fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have fellowship with God is, the, of course, the basis of that. And that, indeed, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin and continues to do that work because it's evidence that we are the real deal, right? That's, that's the idea. God's children walk in light rather than darkness. Now, here's the deal. The, the particular false teaching of this time in history was called Gnosticism. Okay, you don't necessarily need to know all the details about that, but I just want to tell you that the specifics of Gnosticism have, have gone you know, the way of the history books. But today, the heresy of hypocrisy is still a threat. This idea that we can say, you know what? I'm associated with Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but in reality, I can do whatever I want. That is not Christianity. And so we live in a culture increasingly where uh, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can say you're associated with Jesus, and then you can just go do whatever you want, and nobody really cares. And then to insist that, hey, if you are going to say, I follow Jesus, and then to insist that you actually do follow Jesus, that's looked at as some kind of uh, you know, like crazy, you know, uh, Bible-thumping, wild, you know, kind of extreme way of living. And it is extreme on the one hand, but it is, it's gospel. This is what he's called us to. As we're transformed by faith in Jesus, we would follow Jesus. And so anybody that claims faith in Jesus, and yet their life bears no evidence of that, well, we just have to conclude that they are lying, and they're not practicing the truth. But God's children walk in light. That means we live lives characterized by goodness, beauty, holiness, right? All those things, but God is light, right? Those things are now things that are true of his children, that we follow him in that and we reflect his goodness rather than walking in darkness. What does that mean? Well, we'd be living lives characterized by worldliness, evil, and sin. And I would just challenge you this morning maybe to think about, are there areas in my life where I'm struggling with hypocrisy, where my claim to be a Jesus follower doesn't add up? It doesn't match the evidence. And rather than despair, right, and the blessing gift, uh, the blessed gift of the word of God here is confrontation, where we say, you know what, I'm not going to be okay with that, and I'm going to call it what it is. It's not right. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus himself tells us that he is the light of the world. And he says, listen, anyone who follows me, right, they're going to walk in the light. That's what Jesus says. Well, what about you? Are you claiming faith in Christ? And are you then walking in the light? Now, this whole problem, it's, it's more than one false teaching that's kind of causing this issue. So he addresses the issue of hypocrisy here at the outset. But note in, in chapter 1, uh, Verse 6 and 7, again, he deals with the fellowship issue. So in verse 5, uh, he said God is light. In verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So now we're kind of focusing on the fellowship issue. So if we claim to be united with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we have a problem. But if we do walk in the light, in verse 7, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The second heresy issue here is the heresy of false fellowship. 
It's related to the heresy of hypocrisy, but in this case, it's a little deeper because it addresses the issue of partnership or shared interest. We talked about this last week, rescuing this word fellowship from Christian obscurity, right? It's not just about conversations over bagels. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what the essence of fellowship is. Fellowship is partnership, right? And investment and shared interest in God's kingdom. And so here, the problem is people were saying, I'm a partner with God in his kingdom. And John says, but you're not. But he says, if you, if you actually are living out your faith, if there's evidence now in your life of, of transformation, well then, yes, you have fellowship with God. You have a, that, that evidence confirms that, and you have fellowship with other Christians, other brothers and sisters. You see, God's children not only walk in the light, God's children are partners with him and his church. God's children are partners with him and his church, rather than what? Rather than being partners with the enemy. Now, here's the deal. John says there's no middle ground. It's, you either are walking in the light and you have fellowship with God and his church, or you don't. And it doesn't really matter what you claim, right? What you, what you live will show what the reality is of your status. And so, yes, we are, we are by God's grace, his children, and thus we would walk in light and we would be partners with him and his church. And Again, kind of building on our discussion last week, that means that we cooperate together in the advancement of God's cause in loving and serving him and his kingdom. So we say, I'm gifted to serve in the church. I partner with the church and we go and we run and I make sure that I'm an integral part of his church. This is a priority in my life, right? This is something where I say, I cannot live without investment in his body, receiving the benefits of that and, and of course, giving in return. So God's children are partners with him, absolutely. I thought of the illustration of a diamond. You know, as God is light, you know, his light then reflects and, and is, is refracted through uh, the church body. That We live out that fellowship with him. You know, um, the diamond that I was able to give Lindsay, by God's grace, was a family heirloom. And it was this old antique miner's cut. And so if you know anything about diamonds, they're um, antique miner's cut. They don't do it anymore because it's, it's, glor- it's not glorious enough. So uh, anyway, but the, the, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sides to that diamond, actually. It has a very a small top. Okay, I don't remember what they call it, so just don't judge me. It's been a while since I've been ring shopping. All right, anyway. So, but the light that comes in through the top of that diamond, it's refracted through all those different angles on the side, right? And that's kind of the point of the cut. It's supposed to be really cool how it does that. I mean, again, so the idea is that you have one main source of light, but then it, you know, it multiplies in essence. That's God's children being partners with God in the kingdom work. Where God's light, God is light, and we walk in the light, meaning we receive that light, and then we multiply it, right? That God multiplies that light through the church community, kind of like a diamond does that with natural light. Now, how does that actually work? Walking together in fellowship. And I like how John focuses both on fellowship with God and fellowship with the church, because both are true. Well, how do we do it? Well, we worship together, right? We gather to encourage one another with prayer, with singing and reading the word, we gather to have good conversations. We meet in smaller groups, okay? You have spiritual needs that we cannot meet in the, in the large gathering of the church. So we meet in smaller groups, in care groups, and in Bible studies. We have one-on-one meetings in pursuit of Christ together as partners and brothers and sisters. All of that, we serve one another using our giftedness. Why? So that we can advance the cause together and live as partners in the light. Again, John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's not optional. Like that's a part of it. And again, the false teaching here was 
if, if you were in the club, you were in this tiny little club. And I mean, really tiny. Like that was like, it was secret. You know, nobody else knew. And it was like secret meetings and stuff you would go to. And John says, that's not it at all. He says, the deal is, if we, if we actually walk in the light, if we've been transformed by the gospel, we have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. It's not a secret club. Like, if you're in, you're in. Like, that's it. It's open. The doors are wide open. Come, join, be a part, be transformed, walk together, right? That's the idea. So God's children are, are partners with him and his church rather than being partners with the enemy. And by the enemy, we mean Satan, the leader of rebellion against God. And at this point, our cultural circumstance would, would lead you to perhaps think, whoa, 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 calm down. If you're, not, you're saying if you're not actually following Jesus, then you're actually following Satan, come on. And that's exactly what John is saying. There's only two options. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says it differently. He says that before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins and uh, in, in the ways in which we used to walk, the worldly ways in which we used to walk, how according to the, the prince of the power of the air, uh, the God who leads those who are disobedient, namely Satan. He says, before Christ, everyone served Satan's purposes. Not necessarily knowingly. You weren't officially a member of the church of Satan, right? Like that whole deal? No, that wasn't, that's not it. Just if you're thinking worldly, if you're thinking in worldly ways and you're walking in darkness, you are serving Satan's kingdom. That's a fact. So Satan wants you to think, ah, no, your finances don't have anything to do with me and your political ideas don't have anything to do with me. And, you know, your entertainment choices don't have anything to do with me and all that. He wants you to think all that stuff's just safe. It's just neutral. But it's not. You're either thinking about those things in light of who we are in Christ, in his kingdom, or you're following the prince of the power of the air, the God of the sage who's at work and those who are disobedient. So it's one or the other. So God's children are partners with him and his church or partners with the enemy, which means worldliness is never safe. So there's just a caution here. And again, the false teaching there was you could, again, you could walk in darkness. So he says, if you're walking in darkness, then that's your kingdom. So you can't claim to be, have access to the light, but then be walking in darkness. It doesn't, it doesn't work, okay? That partnership is either with God and his church or with Satan, which leads to another false teaching that was kind of at the root cause of the problem here, which he addresses in verse 8 specifically. In verse 8, we read in 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you just pause there, okay, he says, If we're going around saying we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That was one of the teachings that, again, in the first century, John was interacting with. This idea was there's a chosen few who actually are like above the rest inherently, and they were created without sin. And so that's, it was obviously a very small club, right? And so that, that was the idea. So it was like, yeah, you, you know, only a certain few were in this secret club who didn't actually have sin. John says, that's not the message. That's not the message. The message is repent and believe the gospel. He says, if we say, verse 8, we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 9, he talks about if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in verse 10, he circles back. If we say we have not sinned, right, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He basically says the same thing twice in verse 8 and 10 because it was such an issue. He says, if we're going around saying we have not sinned, then we are calling God a liar. That's the conclusion. And his word, this message of the gospel, is not in us. Now, again, 
this first century teaching has gone the way of the history books. So people aren't saying, oh, there's a certain select few of you that are born without sin and you're in the club. Okay, Um, it's fairly obvious this morning that we are not without sin. Can I get an amen from everyone, please? Yes. Okay. but here's the deal. In our circumstances, the culture has shifted and we breathe the air of this culture. And in our culture, the idea is this. Listen, sin's not even really a thing. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's inherently good. Whatever you want to do, just go do. Like, as long as you're not actually murdering someone, it's fine. Like, so that's kind of the idea of the culture. And there's been a shift in worldview. Well, we don't ever want to tell anybody that there's something wrong with them. We don't ever want to tell anybody that there's something not right in them, that they've made a bad choice. We don't ever use the S word sin with somebody because that could affect their development negatively. And so the culture has this, has this message, this foundational you know, idea that, hey, we're all just okay just as we are. Again, John says that is not going to work. So this, this heresy has actually taken a different expression in our culture, but we still face it. The heresy is that we're sinless, that sin is not a problem. Now listen, we gather for encouragement, okay, in the gospel, but part of gathering for encouragement in the gospel means we must acknowledge that we have sinned that we fail, that we need rescue, right? And so it is not a negative thing to affirm that. It's actually the the pathway to blessing. It's the pathway to provision and comfort and grace. But we have to acknowledge the problem, right? It'd be like, you know, having a a medical condition, going to the doctor, even though you're suffering, you have a problem, but you're telling the doctor, I know there's nothing wrong with me. There's definitely something wrong with us. And so this idea, if we believe and we say and we teach, if we have sin or that we have no sin or we've never sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So it's not a matter where we can just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, well, you know, whatever that church wants to teach, that's fine. No, no, because if there's any context personally or corporately where we adopt this idea that we do not have the problem of sin, we are calling God a liar and his truth. This word is not in us. John says it's not okay. Well, here's the deal. God's children confess sin. God's children confess sin. Rather than deny it. Rather than hide it. Rather than justify it. Rather than downplay it. We confess sin. There's a darkness in denying that we have a problem. So what does it look like to confess sin? Well, in this case, we're not talking about going to a mediator in a church and having them perform some kind of act to you or for you. We're talking about simply going straight to God through Jesus and saying, God, I have sinned in these areas and to ask God for forgiveness. And of course, the promise is that he will forgive. We'll circle back there to verse nine in a moment, but I just want to remind you that it is normal, right, and good for Christians to regularly acknowledge their sin. And there's a a fairly high chance that maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're watching, and it's been a while since you've actually confessed your sin to God. I would just encourage you that if you're operating practically as if you have not sinned, that's a problem. Because there's a denial there of the reality of the situation and a denial of God's provision for us. It's also not just about confessing sin to God. We also confess our sin to those that we've wronged, right? We go to them and we ask for forgiveness. That's a part of it. And we also seek accountability from our brothers and sisters in Christ as we struggle with sin. So maybe we include a trusted brother or sister and say, hey, I have failed in this area and I need help. 
I need you to walk with me here. All of that is, is included in God's children confessing sin rather than denying it. That's our gut, that's our gut uh, instinct often, to deny sins. We get confronted by a family member, maybe just by the Spirit of God pointing out something in our Bible reading or just as we think about how we're doing, and we say, you know what, no, nope. no, nope, that's not it. Or we know there's a problem, but we just hide it. We want to keep it out of view. So we delete the internet browser history, and we kind of tuck that away. We hide whatever's going on, right? We don't want people to know. Put that credit card receipt somewhere else, right, that thing. Or we just ignore it. You just, just pretend it's not there. Maybe in worst cases, we justify it. We make excuses to say it's okay. They treated me badly. I can treat them badly, right? After all, they deserved it. Or just downplay the whole thing. Follow the culture's thought. Eh, it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, John says. And if we're saying or living like we have not sinned, he says, we got a problem, right? We make God out to be a liar, and his, his word is not in us. So we deal with this heresy, the heresy of sinlessness. But that leads then to the solution for the problem of sin. Track back with me to verse 7, okay, in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to walk back through and just notice a couple things he says here. In verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then crucially, he says, The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So when we acknowledge our sin, right, John says, and we have fellowship with one another in the church, right, when that is true, then we have a daily experience of the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sin. I just want you to note in verse 7, he doesn't say the blood of Jesus, his son, cleansed us, past tense. He says it cleanses us regularly, consistently, repeatedly. Why? Because we need cleansing repeatedly. Have you seen the amount of laundry that my children produce? If you haven't, you got to get over to the boys' niche. I'm just telling you, like, it's shocking to me, the amount of ways my children can get their clothes dirty. It's, it's unnatural. Maybe, I don't know. What are you talking about? Right? Those clothes need to be washed all the time. They probably need to be washed twice in certain circumstances. They need to be washed. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to be cleansed regularly. Right? There's a recognition that we, that we even as we walk in the light, that we struggle. And so John says, here's the deal. When we walk in the light, and part of that is confessing our sin, what happens? What happens is we actually receive this cleansing. It's a practical experience of the fact that we're forgiven in Christ, where we're reminded of that truth, and we can now move forward by God's grace, right? So there's this blessed here of just being washed clean. I love that imagery there. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's why, you know, the imagery of being washed in the blood of Christ, it, it's uh, you know, a major part of our uh, of our worship song, you know, kind of, uh, you know, metaphor collection. That's, we talk a lot about the blood of Jesus cleansing us because John says that's exactly what it does. But then watch verse 9. If we track to verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same verb for cleansing here, but he says, here's the deal. When we confess our sins, what do we find? Okay, so... Sometimes in our human relationships, when we confess wrong, we get, and this is, as Americans, we've practiced the art of this, the art of the I told you so. So there's like the, uh, somebody comes to us, right, or we go to somebody, we confess our wrong, and then they kind of do one of these. <laughs> it's about time. It's 
about time you fessed up, you know, right? And they get that. Or maybe it's a little bit more subtle. Sometimes it's just they're just straight up. They don't even care. They're just like, I told you so. You are so terrible, right? I'm glad that you finally understand how terrible you are. You're the worst. Thank you. Unfriend. Done, right? You know, like that's it. Like, I mean, that's sometimes, that's how we relate interpersonally. But what happens when we confess sin to God? Because you might, we might fear that from God. That there might be that fear factor. If I confess my sin to God, that he's going to come down on me harder. That's right, you blew it there. And let me tell you three other ways you blew it in that, right? And so maybe there's that hesitancy. But John says, no, it, it's not this line of thinking that says we haven't sinned, we're not sinners. Like, no, that's not it. He says, let's confess our sin. Because, verse 9, if we confess our sins, what do we find? We find God to be faithful and righteous, which that might scare you if you just stop there. He's faithful. Uh-oh, I'm not. He's righteous. I'm definitely not. He's the judge. He is. But he is faithful and righteous to fulfill his promises and to show us grace. So he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We are sinners. We need forgiveness. God offers that forgiveness to us in Jesus, his son. And so he forgives us our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Again, there, a focus on the regular habitual process that this is, this is uh, happening to us all along the way. So it is simultaneously a reality for eternity when we put our faith in Christ, but it's also something that we experience as we grow as Christians and as we confess our sin. He cleanses us repeatedly, continually. You know, as John addresses the heresies here, I mean, he has to come at it, and he's coming at it a little hard. He's like, listen, you got to know there's the heresy of hypocrisy, the heresy of false fellowship, the heresy of guilt and shame, or the heresy of sinlessness, and the heresy of guilt and shame where we get stuck in our sin, and we, we say, you know what, deep down I know I'm a sinner, and maybe I just feel guilty all the time, or ashamed all the time, and I'm struggling with that, right? And so in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, which probably go nicely with the rest of chapter 1, he says, my little children... Again, there's a word there of encouragement, uh, an addressing of uh, the congregation with, uh, you know, terms of endearment, right? My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Because in the, the proto-Gnostic idea of the first century, the thought is, okay, you're in the club, you can do whatever you want. And John says, no, no way. I'm writing these things to you so that you can walk in the light, so that you can actually live out a, a life of uh, faith-driven obedience, Right? So I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what we're shooting for. But not to earn God's favor, but because we received it. But notice how quickly in verse 1 he gets to the reality. Right? He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we will, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. These are important words. The, the term advocate there, it has a, a legal context. And so you need to think about the imagery here of God as judge, God the Father as judge. You need to think about you being on trial. You need to think about maybe even Satan being the accuser. And Satan comes to the Father and, and Satan says, let me tell you what they've done. Let me tell you what they thought. Let me tell you what they said, what they wanted to say. And he has all kinds of evidence that he can present. 
But John says, if anyone does sin, and, and we do, what's, what's true? We have an advocate with the Father. We have the best lawyer ever. Jesus stands before the Father on our behalf. And he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What does the advocate do? The advocate defends the one accused. And so here Jesus says, I will defend you. And his angle is not this. Well, I know they've done a lot of bad things, but look at all the good things they've done. I think, you know, or they thought all this bad stuff, but look at, they thought some good stuff once on Christmas. Like, you know, like they did all this stuff. Like Jesus is not arguing in your defense by going, look at how righteous they are. Jesus Christ stands and says, I will defend you. He says, I am the righteous one and I have taken their place and I shed my blood for their sin. And when Jesus makes that argument, effectively what happens? We are forgiven and declared righteous. And we experience it again and again and again and again. It's God's grace. And so John says, don't be duped into thinking that somehow you don't need forgiveness. That you're some like a sinless, you know, super small saint that's like part of this little club. It's like, don't think that that's you. Don't deny the fact that you need this regular confession of sin. And don't think that your forgiveness is based on your performance. It says there's forgiveness and available there. We can remove the shame and remove the guilt. Why? Because Jesus is our advocate. And the specifics on how it works is in verse 2 of chapter 2. Right? Here we go. So he says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What? Verse 2. He himself, Jesus himself... He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This language is really important because the word there, and some of your Bibles might say he's the propitiation, some older translations, that's a thick word, right? But that word, atoning sacrifice or propitiation, it carries with it all the baggage of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Where where what? Where God designed a way for sinners to be forgiven through the offering of a sacrifice in their place. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that system. He is not only the one who offers the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. And so John just lays out in very practical terms here. He says, Jesus died in our place. He is our advocate. He's the righteous one. He made satisfaction. So the the term atoning sacrifice or propitiation, it refers to two things. It refers to the satisfaction of God's wrath for sin, which is real, okay? It's not to be messed with, but it also refers to the provision of cleansing and forgiveness to the one on on whose behalf the sacrifice is made. It is an outstanding word. (laughs) We need it. And so he makes this argument. He says, listen, yes, if anyone does sin, we have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but only our sins. Wait, what? No, no, he goes on at the end of verse two. He says, but also for those of the whole world. Now, let's be really clear. What, what John is not saying is everybody is forgiven. He's not saying that because you're not forgiven unless you confess your sins and trust Christ. He's made that very clear. If we confess our sins, then we're, we're cleansed, right? So that's, it's not everybody's forgiven in the whole world. He's answering the issue of who can be forgiven, 
And he says the, the, the false teaching of the day was, oh, it's this tiny little club of people that are in. They're the enlightened ones. That's how they would say it. They're the enlightened ones. They're the ones that know. That's where Gnosticism comes from. They're the ones that know. They're the ones that are they're, they're in the club. But John says, no way. Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for anyone. Not just for us, not just for our ethnic group or our geographical area or our level of education or our level of financial achievement or whatever. He says he died for, for the whole world. Anyone. In fact, he's rescuing people out of darkness from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. He's doing that work. And so we see here that God's children, we don't stand in guilt and shame. We stand forgiven rather than condemned. We stand forgiven rather than condemned. And that offer goes out to any who would believe. God's children stand forgiven rather than stand condemned. I wonder this morning, do you realize that if you have put your faith in Jesus today, that you are forgiven? One of the things about living in darkness is we do struggle with guilt and shame, where sometimes we get stuck in it, and we just, it's like a, a heavy cloud, you know, just kind of pushes us down and weighs us down. And maybe you're there, Right? You're feeling that struggle, but you need to know that objectively speaking, Jesus Christ is your advocate with the Father, and he has been the atoning sacrifice for your sins, which means that by his blood, you are cleansed, right? You are clean. You are forgiven. And outside of Christ, you're guilty. And yes, you should be ashamed. But in Christ, because we stand in Christ, we stand forgiven. He is our advocate before the throne of God above. He is the one who guarantees the effectiveness of the gospel. Maybe you need that reminder this morning. Another part of living in darkness is we could be just denying, again, the fact that we need forgiveness. And more and more, our culture, we're breathing this air. Like, there is no shame. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. That's not right either. Because it is right that I acknowledge that when I do sin, I have a, a basis for forgiveness in Christ. There's freedom in that. There's light there, right? This is a result of God's faithfulness and righteousness. And it's a result of Jesus' ministry on our behalf. Listen, there's a chance you're here, you're watching online, and you have never been cleansed of your sin, meaning that you have never confessed your sin to the Lord and put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He is not your advocate. You're standing on your own, and you're trying to make your own argument before God the Father. I just want to encourage you that there is provision for you. It's provision that's available today. And so maybe today needs to be the day where you finally admit, I am a sinner in the sight of God and I need forgiveness. And I can find it not in my own works, not in someone else doing something for me, but I can find it in Jesus who stood in my place, who died for my sins and who stands today as my advocate before the Father. You see, again, we stand forgiven rather than condemned. And so there's, there's a, a sense in which because we walk in the light, we can confess our sin without fear of judgment from God and therefore from each other as well. We don't have to succumb to the darkness of doubt. 
I mean, it's so, it's so amazing just to think about that. God is the one who does this work. He is light. You remember Genesis 1-1? Or Genesis 1-2 where, where God says, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. He creates light. You remember in 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle Paul talking about that. right? He, he builds on that concept. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts, what? The light of the gospel of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Like he's given us this light. He, he's the one that shines the light in our hearts. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8. He's called us to follow him. I think the question is, will we? Are we? I think even of Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah 9. I mean, listen, we were rescued to walk in the light. Be careful this morning about the heresy of hypocrisy. Be careful of the heresy of false fellowship, of sinlessness. Be careful of the heresy of guilt and shame. If you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling like, you know what, you're just stuck in that cycle, take some advice from my friend Martin Luther. He said this, he said, Jesus Christ certainly did not inspire the thought that the devil will get you. He says, for he died in order that, in order that, well, frankly, those who belong to the devil might be freed from him. Therefore, Luther says, act like this. Spit at the devil and say, if I have sinned, well, then I have sinned and I am sorry about it. But Jesus has taken away all the sins of all the world. If only people will confess them and believe Christ. Depart from me, Satan. I am forgiven. That's good advice. Because when you're feeling the weight of condemnation, what you don't need is a pep talk that says, hey, pull it together. You can clean yourself up. You don't need the pep talk that says, dig down deep, you can do it. You need the pep talk that says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you know what? Not just for ours, but for the whole world. We are called to be children of light, to therefore walk in the light. We're called to to walk with the constant recognition of that, the fact that this is who we are in Christ. We live in the presence of God. May we be aware of that. And may we remember that God is light. And he has redeemed us so that we can walk in the light with him. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us do that. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this recognition, uh, this reminder of the truth. Lord, we, we, we need to heed the warnings here about the heresy of uh, sinlessness, Lord, this idea of saying, well, we don't have sin or we don't struggle with sin, and even acting and living like we do, Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond with that, Lord, the heresy of hypocrisy, a false fellowship where we claim that we have fellowship with you and yet our lives don't match that claim, Lord, protect us from that hypocrisy. Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us as people who have been redeemed, that we would walk in the light that our lives would bear evidence of the truthfulness of our claim to be in your family. Lord, we thank you that we have the freedom to confess sin because you are faithful and just and righteous, Lord, that you have provided forgiveness through the blood of your Son. And Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are our advocate with the Father. We praise you that you were willing to be the atoning sacrifice for us and that you stand now and continually argue on our behalf And Lord, we thank you that we are forgiven 
that our guilt is removed and our shame is removed because of your sacrificial death on our behalf and your resurrection, Lord. And we pray and ask that you would help us to live in light of these glorious truths. And Lord, I do pray if there are those who have not yet been cleansed of their sin, that today would be the day. I pray that you would convict them of their sin by your spirit, lead them to repentance, Lord. In all of this, we ask that you would help us to live in light of this truth that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into your kingdom. Lord, we confess you are light. Help us now to walk in the light. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.